Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. I hope you enjoyed and were able to appreciate that song this morning. Um, you know Josh and Diana. Um, Diana lost her father this year. Um, God took him home to be with him, and it was completely unexpected earlier this year, and uh, so for her to be able to stand and sing that, and along with her husband, uh, you know, when they sing, and it's poetic, and the terminology that they used is biblical as they were singing, though basically the earth comes apart, uh, we can still, we can be still and know that he is God, and that he is in control. The uh, young people in the middle, Kirkland, uh, going to graduate from school, high school this year, and his sister, Laura Lee, their mom has cancer, and um, she's in home hospice of sorts and is paralyzed from the waist down. And um, so for those two teenagers to be able to stand and sing that song, you see, when we gather together as a church, we open the Word of God and we sing these truths like they just sang, and I preach these truths, and you receive these truths, it's more than just going through the motions of religion and church. It's uh, called us as the creation of God and as the children of God saved by him, seeking the Lord, um, worshiping him, uh, communicating to him that he is worthy and receiving that truth, even when there are times in our lives when we don't feel like anything is worthy or anything is able to deliver us. So powerful testimony. Thank you all for being used and working on that song and singing it to us here this morning. You're in John. Uh, We've been studying our way through the book of John, this gospel according to John, the beloved of Christ. Back in chapter 1, we we saw and it was clearly presented to us that Jesus was the Word, the Bible says in John chapter 1. He was the Word, and that he, as the Word, is the creator. He created the heavens and the earth. And then it tells us in John chapter 1 that he came unto his own, and his own received him not. As we've studied our way through the Gospel of John, we've seen different miracles so far. Some of the miracles were in Cana, um, a couple of them in Cana so far. We saw the power of the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated for us while he was in Jerusalem there on the Temple Mount and driving out the money changers that were there. And we see the authority and the omnipotence of Almighty God. And, uh, of course, we read and studied in John chapter 3 as he met with Nicodemus, and he told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again. And Nicodemus was not a saved man when we left him in chapter 3. He was a religious man, but he wasn't born again. He was not a child of God. I believe that's true in our day. I believe there are a lot of religious people. I believe there are a lot of people who know parts of the Bible, who can sing hymns, who attend church, maybe even are members of churches. But, are, but have never genuinely put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. I, I, and if that is you today, and you're a very religious person, and maybe you have high character, and you're very sincere and genuine, and you're uh, the cream of the crop, so to speak, as a, a citizen of these United States, in your community, friend, you must be born again. And that salvation is only found through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we find ourselves here in chapter 5, uh, chapter 4 was certainly exciting. In chapter 4, a whole town, the 
town of Sychar in Samaria trust Christ uh, and believe upon him. And, and they don't need to see miracles. They just take him at his word. And many, many people were saved in that town in Samaria. And Christ spent two days there teaching them. And then they moved north uh, back up to Galilee, to Cana again. And, and then we read, last week we studied about that man, that father, remember, who had a young boy. And his young boy, uh, they lived in Capernaum, and uh, he made a 20-mile walk uphill to Cana, where he had heard there was a man by the name of Jesus who could save people and, and, and heal people and make people whole again. And he walked uphill, and it's uphill. Uh, he got there, and, and Jesus really exposed his faith. He's shown a spotlight on that man's faith. And we talked about it. We can see it in that man's life. There's such a thing as a, a kind of faith that believes that Jesus can do miracles, but it's not necessarily saving faith. There's the kind of faith that will even go so far as to obey some of the commandments of God, but not yet saving faith. And uh, God did, Jesus did heal that boy, didn't he? He healed him from Cana, the boy in Capernaum, and he told the father, go home, your son lives. And the, and the father did. He walked downhill back home. And, uh, and when, his, when his servants came out to greet him, and they ran to meet him, and, and uh, they told him, your son liveth. And at that point, the father's faith turned from a faith that believed that Jesus could do miracles and a faith that would lead him to take God at his word to a saving faith. And the Bible says that he was saved and his whole house was saved. Oh, boy, that's my prayer for us as a church family, and maybe some here who are not saved, that we'd, that we'd have that kind of faith, that it'd be, so, it'd, be, it'd be that kind of faith that would lead to our whole households being saved. I saw a grandmother this morning walking her grandson up to the, uh, the entrance, and, uh, and I was moved to pray, Lord, please help this young boy never to forget the faith of his grandmother. Help him not just to remember going to church, but Lord, help him to somehow, as a young boy, however many years he has with his grandmother, and is able to witness her faith, help him to grab a hold of her faith and may her faith become his faith. And, uh, and that's my desire for us as a church. Look here at our text, John chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading in verse number 1. I'm going to read down through verse number 16. And we're going to look at a miracle again this morning, and I love studying these miracles that Jesus did. But this miracle to me is kind of sad. Not so much that the miracle is sad, but the result, the end of the story, to me, is incredibly sad. Look here, John chapter 5, verse number 1 says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market, or the sheep gate, that would be the northeast corner of Jerusalem, a pool which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. It was a big place. Verse 3, and these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. And for an angel went down at certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then, after first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in to the water, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. Thirty-eight years this man had had this infirmity. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lie, 
Apparently he couldn't move himself and knew that he had been now a long time in that case. He saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, He that made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then asked they him, What man is that which said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? He that was healed wist not who it was. He didn't know who had healed him. He didn't know him. That tells me he didn't have much faith. He didn't know him. Verse 13, For Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come come unto thee. The man departed from Jesus and told the Jews that that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him. Because he had done these things, he had healed this man on the Sabbath day. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, as we look to your word now. Father, give us understanding. Help us to see this particular passage we're going to look at in this wonderful historic event of a man healed after 38 years of being paralyzed and unable to move. Help us to see this story, but also, Lord, would you draw it together? Help us to see the bigger picture uh, from your word, I pray, this morning. I pray that you'd meet needs in the, our lives this morning, Father, throughout this auditorium. Uh, from folks who are walking with you to folks who are living in rebellion, uh, to folks who are hurting, to folks who are full of joy. So, Lord, I pray that you'd meet, meet needs. Do what I cannot by your word and your spirit, I ask. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. Look again at verse number one. Now, at this point... In, in our study of the gospel, according to John, Jesus, his ministry, his Galilean ministry has started, which was a, for a time period of about 16 months. Now, in, in verse 1 and following, we're going to see that Jesus goes back to Jerusalem, as he would, and it tells us here why he went back to Jerusalem. He went because of the feast. There were seven different major feasts that the Jewish people would follow. And particularly, these seven had been commanded by God and given by God. And in those things that were commanded by God, through his word, Jesus always obeyed his father. Okay? But, the, but the Jewish leadership, leadership had also added much to what God had given to his people. In fact, much of the religion of Jesus' day, the Jewish religion of Jesus' day, was man-made. Okay? Now, there was still some that was of the Lord, and so Jesus obeyed his Father. But a lot of it was man-made, and we'll see that as we go along through our study. But Jesus had already started his Galilean ministry about 16 months in length, and before that, he had been in Judea, the southern kingdom, for about a year. Now, we already went through that year in our study of the Gospel of John. John takes about 
the, ha- the last half of chapter 2 and the, and the chapter 3, and that's it for a whole year. Okay, so we covered a year of Jesus' life in a chapter and a half. Now, some of the other Gospels spend more time uh, uh, looking at Jesus' life during that time. But here, he's in the Galilean ministry. Look at verse number 1 again. It says in chapter 5, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And why does it say he went up if he had to go south? Well, because Jerusalem was up. Verse 2, now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market, and I mentioned that is the sheep gate uh, of the city of Jerusalem, by the sheep gate or the sheep market, a pool which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, which means house of mercy, okay? And it had five porches. It was a big pool. It had these places where people would sit underneath these porches out of the sun, In verse 3 it says, In these, these porches, lay a great multitude of impotent folk. People who were maimed, who had been injured. Some had been born into life this way. Some were blind, it says. Some were halt. Some were withered. Maybe a a deformity in some way. And what were they doing there? In verse 3, the latter part, it says, They were waiting for the moving of the water. What what are they talking about here? Verse 4 says, For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. He would stir the water. And whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stopped or stepped in, the first person to step in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. So now we know why all these people were here. There were a lot of people gathered around, and people would bring their loved ones there, and some people, there was nobody to care for them. They somehow got dragged their bodies there, and they basically just lived there, and begged, and, and, and people would give them money so they could live, so they could survive. And they were just hoping that maybe there was something in this water that would heal them. And if they could just get into the water, the first person in the water would be made whole. And there's all these people here who, frankly, were hopeless. Their only hope was that maybe they could be the first person into the water. And that's where we find this remarkable story. Now, it's a miracle what Jesus does in this passage. It's awesome, isn't it? Uh, take up thy bed, you know, you're healed, stand. Take up your bed and go, walk. Do something you haven't done in 38 years, and, and, and Jesus heals this man. It's a, it's a miracle story, there's no doubt about that, but I submit to you that it is a sad miracle story. Um, because this miracle is the beginning of the persecution of the Jewish leadership against the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I remind you of John chapter 1. He came unto his own to save them, to deliver them, to be their Lord, to be their Messiah, to be their Savior. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. His own rejected him. So here we have this man, right? He's 38 years without being healed. But look at the end of verse number 16 the end of verse number 16, or we'll just read verse number 16 of our text, because this is the point, I think, of this story. It's really a remarkable emphasis. Look at verse number 16 of chapter 5. It says it this way, And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him, because he had done these things, he had healed this man, he had told this man to take up his bed and walk on the Sabbath day. The Jews were persecuting Jesus. 
Now, the word Jews here isn't referring to all people who were, uh, who were Hebrews or all people who were Israelites. The word Jews refers to the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. The word persecute means to chase, to run down, to pursue. And really, from this point on in Jesus' ministry, the Jewish leadership, very religious, very pious in their own eyes, they hated Jesus. And they literally worked and gave forth effort to be able to put him to death. And and the verb persecute has the idea of a continual action. In other words, they didn't stop. The death of Jesus consumed them. That's all they could think about. They longed for it. They talked about it. They planned for it. They communicated it, even to the point in other passages of the Gospels where even the common people knew that the Jewish leadership wanted Jesus dead. So this was not a secret. So this miracle of Jesus then triggers the hatred of the Jewish religious people against Jesus. And it was, was with hatred and hostility they pursued him. Now, I have a question for you. Are you surprised at the hatred these Jewish leaders had for Jesus? Does that surprise you at all? I mean, why would they hate him so much? I mean, would you, why would they hate someone who's making a lame man walk again? Why, why would they care? It had more to do with what he was teaching than what he was doing, although I think what he was doing was revealing who he was. And it was also revealing who they were. It was shining a light on their hypocrisy. They were religious, but they were ungodly. They were wicked in the depths of their heart. And Jesus' righteousness and Jesus' power was revealing their hatred for God, even. I'll go so far as to say that. No, they they hated him. They hated him. Why? Because Jesus had been doing powerful miracles. He was popular. Huge crowds of people were coming to observe Jesus and to hear what he had to say. The miracles of Jesus generated uh, unprecedented excitement in Israel. The miracles which Jesus was doing on a daily basis in front of massive crowds of people were drawing even bigger crowds, and the people were amazed Uh, The Bible says in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 32 says, And as they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. So a man possessed with an evil spirit, demon-possessed man. And when the devil was cast out, Jesus cast out the devil, the dumb, the man spake, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. They were saying, We've never seen anything in our lives or in the history of Israel so incredible as what this man Jesus can do. Well, that, if you're all into your own popularity and your own political position and you depend on the crowds applauding you and, ooh, there goes that, then Jesus is rubbing you the wrong way, okay? He's not going along with the status quo. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus heals a paralyzed man and he forgives the man's sins. And you remember how the, the, the man had friends and they, they pried off the roof of the house and they lowered him down into the roof to Jesus. And the Bible there says in Mark chapter 2 that they were all amazed and the people were glorifying God saying, we've never seen anything like this. So Israel was abuzz because of Jesus' miracles and his teaching. His ministry is only about a year and a half, a little less than that, in length of time at this point. 
his entire earthly ministry only lasted three years. In a public way. It's only taken him about a year, and already the Jewish leadership hate him. So the crowds were drawn, and they said things like in John chapter 7 and verse 46, never man spake like this. You know what, if you're a rabbi and you hear that, that's kind of offensive. They never said that about me. Never a man spake like this. Who is this person? The the people were excited by the sensational power of Jesus' words and his works, and they marveled at everything he did. And everywhere he went, he was being mobbed by crowds. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 24, listen to this. It says, and his fame went throughout all Syria. That's where ISIS was fighting, you know. And they brought unto him all sick people and, and, and that were taken with diverse diseases and torments and those which were possessed with devils, demon-possessed people, and those which were lunatic, those people had lost their minds, and those that had had the palsy, they were paralyzed, and he healed them. And in verse 25 of Matthew, 20, Matthew 4, it says this, And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. That's the other side of the Jordan River. And that pretty much covers everywhere and, and everywhere around the land of, of Israel. You see what's happening. This was amazing. Now, these are small towns. I've emphasized that to you. Cana, not much there. But word was spreading. And by the way, don't forget these miracles and these wonders that Jesus was performing were for the purpose of revealing to his people that Jesus is God. He is the Messiah. He's the promised one of the Old Testament. He's the one you've you've dreamt of. He's the one you've heard preached about. He's the one who, 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 who is your Redeemer and your Savior. He's the Savior of the world. And these miracles and these wonders were to reveal to God's people, the people of Israel, that God had come. The Messiah had come. In Matthew chapter 13, we see a crowd so great, they were pressing upon Jesus that he had to get into a boat and push out to out in the Sea of Galilee to get some space in order to preach and teach. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, In the meantime, when they were gathered together, an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod, or they trod, one upon the other. We don't have that problem here. I didn't see any of you walking on top of each other trying to get up to the front for these seats here. I've never had that. I haven't had to shove out. I haven't had to stand in the baptistry to be able to preach and teach. You know, Jesus had to get in a boat to get enough room to speak. So, and I'm saying this, I want want you to see this. You're in in chapter 5. Look over to chapter 6 in John, just for a moment. Look down to verse number 10. And here in John chapter 6, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here, but in John chapter 6, we have the feeding of the 5,000, as it's commonly known. But look at verse number 10 of John chapter 6. It says, And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000 men. Now, that's 5,000 men, John records. There would be easily 3,000, 5,000, maybe more women. So now we're over... 10,000 people. 
that are there for the feeding that he's going to feed them with. How many loaves and how many fish? Five loaves, two fish. Cindy, that would give you heartburn. If we had a lot of people over and you only had five loaves and two fish, you'd, you'd, it wouldn't be, it'd be something. It wouldn't be heartburn, would it, Doc? It'd be something else. Anxiety, yeah. And Jesus is moved with compassion upon these people because they're all hungry, and he's got 5,000 men, and that doesn't include children. And they didn't have small families in those days. So there could have easily been 15, 20, even upwards to 25,000 people there. 5,000 men. Maybe even 20,000 people. And so um, what my point is this, and you're still staying in chapter 6 for just a moment, but the people had, and I'm going to say it this way, the people had some interest in Jesus, but they had reservation about him. And they had reservation about him. Now, they were thrilled with what he could do. They were amazed by what he could do, but they had reservation about him because of what he taught. Because what Jesus was teaching was going against their way of life. Specifically, their religion. It was offensive. It was troubling. And many people came because it was kind of a battle... He was going head-to-head with the most powerful people in their society. So the people had some interest in Jesus, and that's an understatement, but they had reservations about Jesus. So why then were most of these people following Jesus? Well, the vast majority of people only followed Jesus for superficial reasons, to be part of something bigger than themselves, to see miracles, to be part of the community and didn't know what was happening. Uh, look, look at John, John 6 and verse 26. And not just to see miracles, but some people were interested in Jesus because of a free meal. Look at verse 26. This is after he feeds the 5,000, 20,000. Jesus says in verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, Not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Now this is interesting, because Jesus had fed all of these people on one side of Galilee. He goes to the other side of Galilee. Many of the people walk around Galilee. It's not a small lake. They get to the other side where Jesus is, and there they are. It's kind of like just in time for dinner. And Jesus looks at them and says, you're not even following me because of the miracles I do. You're following me because you're hungry. Because you want me to feed you again. The point is this. People, their belief in him was shallow. It wasn't a genuine saving faith. Look down to verse 64 in John chapter 6, verse 64. It says there, but there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. Look down to verse uh, 66. Same chapter. From that time, many of his disciples went back. Many of the people who had been learning about him went back and walked with him no more. Some of us in this room, that's too familiar to us. 
We can remember a time in our life when we, we, we sought the Lord and we sought him through his word and we, we were saying yes to his spirit and we were living in obedience to him. And, and, and my, I have a question for you. Have you gone back? Are you holding back? In verse 67, it says, Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? It was to such an extent that Jesus literally looks at the twelve apostles. He looks at them and he says, Are you going to leave me too? Are you going to leave me too? You can turn back to chapter 5. I, I point this out just because I want you to know thousands of people saw God in human flesh. Thousands of people saw Jesus. They heard him teach. They heard, think about this, they heard God teach. They heard God preach. I wonder if we would have thought it was boring. I wonder if we would have walked away from it. I wonder if we, after hearing him teach and hearing his words, would have thought, been more concerned about lunch than we were his words. The words of God. I wonder if when he didn't do miracles that day, we would have been like, yeah, that was a dud. Should have stayed home and weeded the garden. And he's not doing anything today. I'm not much impressive about him today. They, they heard God teach. They saw God in human flesh. They saw him do miracles. And yet the vast majority of these people remained loyal to their way of life. Their religious, their religious system. And ultimately, many of them, the majority of them, rejected their Messiah. After three years of more miracles than could be recorded, there were only 120 faithful disciples of Jesus Christ in the upper room in Judea. In 1 Corinthians 15, it's recorded for us that there were 500 disciples of Christ, most likely in Galilee. That would be a little over 600 people who truly were following Jesus after three years of hearing him teach and preach and do miracles and feed thousands of people. They were more loyal to their religious system. You know, every week we gather together and we open the word of God and I do my best and I pray that God will guide me and direct me to teach and preach this book without any other agenda that, uh, other than I accurately preach it and teach it to you. That is my only goal. So we hear the word of God. And the question is, are we more loyal to our way of life than we are to what God says? Are we more loyal to our way of thinking, our opinions, and our society, the way we live, what we do, what we're used to? And we all have that. We all grew up a certain way. We all have some disciplines in our lives. Some are bad. They're bad habits. And some, some of them are good. But what are you most loyal to? Again, he came unto his own. His own received him not. And so... What began as an interest with reservation eventually turned to rejection of Jesus without reservation. Pilate is saying, Barabbas or Jesus? And they're saying, Barabbas. And not saying it, they're screaming it and yelling, give us Barabbas. 
What about Jesus? I find no fault in this man. Crucify him. Crucify him. And they're yelling with vitriol in their, in their voices. They hate him. This is the one. I want to notice a couple of truths, three truths this morning from this passage. One, I noticed the wonderful compassion of Jesus. Look back to chapter 5 and look at verse 5. It says, And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, and Jesus, of course, would have known that because he's God, Jesus saith unto him, end of verse 6, Wilt thou be made whole? Wilt thou be made whole? And now, we might think, why did Jesus ask that to a guy who's been paralyzed and can't move for 38 years? And you know what? I think it's better to say that, a genuine recognizing, seeing this man where he is in his condition, and talking to him, acknowledging where he is in his condition. Wouldn't that be more sincere than walking up to him and saying, How you doing today? Right? Isn't it more sincere to just be honest when we see one another and we know someone's hurting, rather than give the casual, generic greeting, he says, would, would you like to be healed? I don't know if that man had ever been asked that question. Verse 7, the impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, I'm dragging myself toward the pool, another steppeth down before me. And Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Three statements, three commands there in verse 8. In verse 9 it says, And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. And that's the point. You know, God is a God of compassion. When I look at this passage and I see this man who didn't know who Jesus was, who didn't have any faith in Jesus, he hadn't walked 20 miles uphill from Capernaum to Cana. He didn't pray to Jesus. Jesus didn't pass by and he cry out, Lord! None of that. He's just there trying to wait and hope, hoping after all these years that maybe he could be the first one into the water to be healed. Jesus was a God and is a God of compassion. The Bible tells us of God's compassion in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In Psalm 86 and verse 15 it says, But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, plenteous in mercy and truth. In Psalm 111, in verse 4, the latter part says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. In Psalm 112, in verse 4, the latter part, it says that He is gracious and full of compassion and righteousness. In Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9, says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy, the Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. In Matthew 9, in verse 36, it says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. You know, when God sees someone who's about to faint, Jesus, when he saw the people about to faint, not able to hardly carry on another step, he was moved with compassion. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're at that point in your life, you're about to faint. I don't know if you can carry it. I, I, I believe the Bible, but I don't know if I can carry on another step. Tomorrow, I, I don't want to think about tomorrow. It's just today, right now. Know that God is a God of compassion. In Matthew 14, in verse 14, it says that Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion upon them, and he healed their sick. 
In Matthew 15 and verse 32, then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude. Why? Because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I will not send them away, fasting lest they faint in the way. So he's, he is compassionate. We read so many times that Jesus was moved with compassion, and he has the same compassion as God has. And compassion means sympathy. Sympathy. Have you ever appreciated when someone is sympathetic with you about where you're at? When someone sympathizes with you and maybe even empathizes with you? God is a God of sympathy. To some degree, he feels the pain of fallen sinners, and yet he is merciful. All of his works and all of his words, all of them are compassionate. He has compassion for physical suffering, and that's why he heals people. He has compassion for the demonic suffering, and that's why he delivers people. He has compassion for the sin suffering, and that's why he saves people. God is by nature, by his very nature, he is a God of compassion. But look at verse 6 again. Because here we have a man, and Jesus is compassionate to this man, but here we have a man that nobody else was showing compassion to at all. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? And we see his compassion there. Verse 7. The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man. Nobody. Nobody is showing me any compassion when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. Do you, do you think one of us would help him into the pool? Do you think someone else would help him into the pool? Do you think someone would put his needs above their own? Now, it was from what the Bible seems to indicate here, it was kind of the first person to the pool gets healed and everybody else waits for whenever the next time comes. So I could see the me first, you know, I mean, you, you're paralyzed, but, but I'm paralyzed too, and, and my, my neighbors are here, and we're not hanging around for the next time either. We're going to get on with life. He says, but while I am coming, I'm trying, I'm dragging myself toward the pool, another steppeth down before me. You know, Jesus shows this man, this man compassion, he shows him mercy, a man who had received no mercy, and he indicates that no one would help him get into the water. While I'm coming, somebody else steps in front of me. For 38 years, he had had no mercy for this man, or no one else had had any mercy for this man. Nobody else was making sure that he got to go first, or at all. This man was not used to someone showing him compassion. Now, for the first time, here's someone who cares for him. His name is Jesus. Jesus is compassionate as he starts this kind, this meaningful conversation with this crippled man, please keep in mind uh, this morning that the cripples of Jesus' day were viewed as a pariah, a drain on the society. The religious leaders would look at a crippled man and say, he's crippled because of his sin. He's getting what he deserves. I have to give him something, I suppose. And they were, they were viewed that way. They were outcasts of society, people who couldn't take care of themselves because of their physical, physical conditions uh, would have to beg for their livelihood. And they lived out in the streets. And nobody of religious importance was going to speak to this man. But Jesus speaks to him. I don't believe this man had any idea who Jesus was. He's not a believer. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. And 
immediately Jesus gives him three commands. Look at them in verse 8. He says, get up, pick up your pallet, your bed, and walk. And immediately, look at verse number 9, the beginning part, and immediately the man was made whole. He was made whole, and he took his bed and walked. Wow. And, and uh, so this is, I think, a stunning moment, right? He begins to feel strength. I don't know what it would have been like, but imagine he begins to feel strength coming into his useless legs and his arms, and he begins to stand up, and, and as he stands, God gives him the power and the strength to stand up. And by the way, that's something you ought to take with you today. What if he had just sat there? I don't know that there was any feeling. The Bible doesn't talk about that. I imagine there was some sort of physical feeling that came along. But Jesus looks at him in verse 8 and says, Rise up, rise, take up thy bed and walk. You know, the guy could have just looked at Jesus and laughed at him. 38 years, pal. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to stand up, take up my bed. Are you mocking me? Maybe he did feel something, I don't know. But whatever the case is, this man does. And as he began to stand up, he had the power and the strength to stand up. Sometimes I talk to you about walking. Don't stop walking. You say, I can't walk. I'm paralyzed. Fear. Worry. Pastor, you have no idea. And you know what? I don't. But you need to keep walking. And as you walk, and as you take a step by faith in the right direction, saying yes to the Lord, he's going to give you strength. He's going to give you the grace that you need. He's going to give you the understanding that you need. He's going to give you the wisdom that you need. You need to trust him. You know, when Jesus healed this man, it was complete. It was instantaneous. And some of us would like to say, well, Seth, we'd sure love it if God would just do that, you know, with my issue. Just instantaneous, right now, complete. It's done. It's over with. He's whole again. There was no need for rehabilitation for this man. It was not a progression. He was like a young man, full of strength. And he stood up. But he didn't know who Jesus was. This miracle isn't about this man's faith. We, we saw the, the faith of the father, the noble man, in, at the end of chapter 4. We could see his faith. We could ponder his faith and how it was and how it progressed, how it grew. But here, we, we don't see any faith that this man has. It just starts out, this miracle just starts out with a demonstration of the compassion of Jesus. And this man responds to that compassion and he begins to walk. Now, here's the point of this, of this uh, narrative. Look at verse 9, the latter part. Verse 9, the very end. It says, And on the same day was the Sabbath. And I really believe that's the point of this passage. Jesus knew the religious leadership were going to hate him for this. He knew it was going to make them mad. And he was drawing them out. Healing this man. Jesus could have healed him the day before. He could have healed him the day after. It wasn't like this man was at the point of death this particular day. It was a chronic problem, and Jesus picked the Sabbath for the express purpose of exciting a confrontation with the leaders of Israel. Look at verses 10 and following, and notice, not only do I see the wonderful compassion of Jesus, but secondly, I notice the intense contempt of the Jews for Jesus. Look at verse number 10. The Jews, therefore, said unto him that was cured, 
So this man's walking around with his bed. (laughs) And they say to him, it is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. And he answered them, he that, he that made me whole, wherever he is and whoever he was, the same said unto me, take up thy bed and walk. I, I, I'm just carrying my bed around because I've just been healed and that guy told me to. That's all I'm doing. Verse 12, then asked they him, what man is that which said unto thee, take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was. He didn't know who he was. Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. He didn't know Jesus. That man, this man was not saved. He wasn't healed because of his faith. That's interesting to me. It was just Christ's compassion for him. He just had compassion. But what we see now is this intense contempt for, of the Jewish leadership for Jesus. The leadership of, of Israel, this man might not have, not have known who Jesus was, but the leadership of Israel knew who he was. And they hated him. They hated him. Uh, In Matthew 12 and verse 24, it says this about the leadership of Israel. And when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow, talking about Jesus, doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. They literally say, Jesus is casting out evil spirits by the power of the devil himself. They said that Jesus was empowered by Satan. Very confused, these leaders of Israel. John 8 and verse 48 It says, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan? They were trying to insult him. You're a Samaritan. And hast a devil. They literally say you're demon-possessed to Jesus. Didn't Jesus know that it would upset the Jewish leadership when he told this man to take up his bed? Of course he knew it. The Jewish leadership had perverted God's law. God had given the Sabbath, which was Saturday, the Sabbath law, all the way back in Exodus chapter 20. And God had given it to his people as a day of rest. It was a wonderful, wonderful blessing from God to his people. You have a day of rest. I want you to take a day of rest. I don't want you to work seven days a week. I want you to not do what you normally do on Saturday. What you do the rest of the days of the week, Sunday through Friday, uh, you work hard. But when it comes to Saturday, I want you to take a day of rest. I want you to rest. You need it. Uh, In fact, we could go even back further than that. When God created the heavens and the earth, he actually rested on the seventh day. He took a day of rest. And he repeated this command in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. God had given the Sabbath as a time of rest, of relaxation, of enjoyment, doing good. The only thing you were not to do on the Sabbath was normal, everyday work. Normal business, the normal jobs. Jeremiah 17 and verse 21 says it this way, Thus saith the Lord, Take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Neither carry forth a burden out of your house on the Sabbath day, neither do ye any work, but hallow ye the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. In other words, Jeremiah was reiterating this, what God's intent was. He says, don't keep the normal work of the week on the Sabbath. Take a break. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your friends. Um, Rest. Remember me, is what he was saying. Remember me as God. And worship me. But the Jewish leadership had added dozens and dozens of binding commands to be upheld on the Sabbath day. Now, did you hear what I just said? The Jewish leadership, extra-biblical, are adding commands and levying those commands upon the people. 
In fact, in Matthew 23, the burden was so oppressive that people couldn't, couldn't carry it. And the leadership didn't give them any help at all. It, they were impossible burdens to live under. The leadership had so perverted the Sabbath day that it really had become the worst day of the week. It had become a day of bondage. And Jesus even declared that he could do whatever he wanted on the Sabbath. In Matthew chapter 2 and verse 27, Jesus said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, to give man a break, to give him a rest for God's glory, and not a man, and not man for the Sabbath. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath, to serve. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. In other words, he was saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, I can do whatever I want on the Sabbath. So Jesus purposely brought about a Sabbath confrontation. This was not about the faith of the man. This was about the confrontation with the leaders. Jesus refused to observe the legalistic, man-made Sabbath regulations of rabbinic tradition. The Lord deliberately healed this man on the Sabbath, and he deliberately tells him to pick up his bed, and he deliberately tells him to walk. He knows that he's defying the Jews, the Jewish leadership that are always around watching him. And he has no interest in their traditions, only in the law of God. They had turned God's gift to mankind, the Sabbath, into a burden. And it was a demonstration of their false religion, their false righteousness. Did you notice in, in those verses that I read that when they come to this man, in verses 10, 11, and 12, when these Jews, these religious leaders, come to this man, they see that he's cured They don't congratulate him at all. They don't say, hey, good for you. We're so happy for you. All they care about is themselves. They don't care. They couldn't care less about this man. This man's been a a paralyzed man for 38 years. And they couldn't possibly care any less than they cared for this man. So we have the compassion of Jesus we have the intense contempt of the Jewish, Jewish leadership for Jesus. But I want to end with this. I see an amazing complacency of the man who was healed for Jesus. In fact, in this passage, it seems to me that this man who is healed by Jesus actually turns Jesus in to the religious leaders. And I spent much time up front making it obvious to you that though thousands and thousands of people saw the miracles of Jesus, were fed by him, heard his words and his sermons, his teaching, his preaching, at the end of his three years of ministry, there's about 620 people who are true followers of him. And this is why. 38 years of being a cripple, healed by Jesus, and his loyalty is still to his religious way of life. The way he lives, what he believes, not to Jesus. Look at our text, verse 14. Just the beginning part says, And Jesus findeth him in the where? In the temple. So this guy gets healed of Bethesda, not too far away, he heads straight for the temple. Which would make sense, right? To worship God, to give thanks. He goes to the temple, and remember on the Temple Mount, you could have 10,000 people easily up there, more, 
depending on what was happening at that time. So there's a lot of people up there. And the Bible tells us that Jesus goes and finds this man in the temple. I've already told you that Jesus knew what was in man. We looked at that in chapter 2. And he knew where they were. He knew where this man was. And he knew where this man had been. And he knew where this man was going. And Jesus knows that about you and me too. As I was typing earlier this week, I thought of that. And my question as I sat back in my chair was, where am I going? What direction am I headed? Where is the landing point for me? I don't mean heaven. I mean in this life. Am I on the right path? And Jesus comes to this man in the temple. Look at verse number 14, the latter part. Look at what Jesus says. And Jesus said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. You've been healed. You can walk. And then he says this, Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Now when Jesus says to this man, Sin no more, what was Jesus implying? That he was a sinner. I'll go one step further than that. Jesus was implying to this man that he had been a paralyzed man for 38 years because of his sin. Now, is that always the case? No. It's not always the case. But Jesus implies here that his 38-year-old illness was connected to sin. It's not always the case. In chapter 9, we read of a man born blind, and the Jews say, Who sinned, this man or his parents? And what did Jesus say? Neither. He's not blind because of his sin. He's not blind because of his parents' sin. So it's not always that a person is sick or unhealthy because of sin, but sometimes it is true. In 1 Corinthians 11, we're told, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. David said that God's hand was so heavy on him for his sin that his life juices were drying up. And Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, told the people of Israel that if you don't obey God, God's going to cause these diseases to come upon you. So in the case of this man, his sickness was related to sin, to his sin. And we don't know any more than that. Jesus gives this man, though, a compassionate warning. Look at verse 14, the middle part. He says, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more. And then he says, Lest the worst thing come unto thee. And Jesus seems to indicate to this man that he's unsaved. And Jesus is saying 38 years of illness is a result of your sin, but that is nothing compared to the wrath of God in hell that you'll experience forever. You've been made well, you've been made whole, but go and sin no more. And look at the man's complacent response in verse number 15. The man departed and told the Jews, talking about the Jewish leadership, that it was Jesus which had made him whole. Jesus heals this man of a 38-year-old paralysis, changes his life. Jesus comes back to him and says, Hey, it's great that you're whole and that you can walk and that you have a life now to live on this earth, but I want you to know something. There's more to life than this life. You need to go and stop sinning, stop living in sin, because the future, what is eternal, is a far greater consequence and a far, ought to be a far greater concern to you than this life, which is very temporal. It was the mercy of God, it was the compassion of God that Jesus sought out this man. And amazingly, this man leaves Jesus and immediately goes and finds the Jewish leadership and identifies Jesus as the one who healed him. 
And I do not doubt that this man knew that these men hated him, hated Jesus. In the face of the compassion of Christ, in the face of an amazing miracle, in the face of healing, this man declared his loyalty to the Jewish religion who hated Jesus and wanted him dead. This has to be one of the most startling acts of ingratitude and unbelief in all the healings that Jesus ever did. And this man had no intent at all of worshiping Jesus. And, you know, as I think about this, I think about us as a church, and I wonder, how is our worship, how is our gratitude meter when it comes to the one who has made us whole? And not just physically, but more than that, more important than physical healing is spiritual healing. The forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins, past, present, future. Never to be judged for our sin. Jesus Christ dying in our place so that we could be made whole, so that we could be, made, could be reconciled to God and to be declared righteous, justified. How's our gratitude meter? Life. I sure got a rotten lot in life. I don't know why I didn't get to be rich. I didn't know why I didn't get to be handsome. I don't know why I didn't get to be pretty, smart, whatever. I don't know why I have to charge my lawnmower every time I try to start it. I don't know why my lawn's underwater and I need pontoons to mow it. Okay, I'm getting too close to home. Anyway, but you know what? We can go around this room and we can ponder and we can complain about our lot in life and what we don't have and how this relationship isn't what we think it ought to be and how we have suffered here and suffered there. You know what? This man, he was made whole and he went back to his religious system. He literally turned in the one who had made him whole. And the result of that was in verse 16. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus with hostility. They ran him down. They pursued him relentlessly and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. I want you to take your hymnal and I want you to stand to your feet. And I want us to turn to hymn number 485 and I want us to sing together, What Will You Do With Jesus? And I want us to sing all three stanzas. Paul, if you'd come for baptism at this time.